Hi guys, it's Tori. Have you ever dreamed of owning a vineyard in Italy? Or starting your own bar on a tropical island? Or maybe even moving to the country and living off the land? I think we've all had a few fantasies like that, and most of us leave them at that. Something that's just a dream. Something you think you could only do if you won the lottery. After all, you don't know anyone else who's done it, and it seems impractical and just too far out of reach. But what if it wasn't? Do do do. Our next guest, Helen, is someone who has lived out her fantasy against the odds. Helen grew up in Sydney as a city girl, but ever since she was put on her first horse as a five-year-old on a school field trip, she dreamt of owning her own horse riding farm. She didn't have farming experience, family money, or any connections, but she had an unwavering love of horses and she knew she couldn't have it any other way. She had a single-minded vision for her life and did everything she could to pursue her passion. So in her late teens, Helen lived a typical city life, like most of us have. She was working full-time, studying at nights, fitting in some sport, and partying while she could. But she was also spending Sundays working at a riding ranch and saving up money for her dream. When she was 21, she quit her full-time job to start her own business in the city, giving riding lessons and carriage rides. She spent the better part of a decade saving money, getting as much experience with horses as she could, and searching for the perfect property to make her dream come true. She was frustrated but focused, and it wasn't until her late 20s that all the pieces finally came together and she took that leap. Despite being nearly 30, single, afraid of the dark, and unsure of exactly how she was going to start her farm, she left behind her Sydney life to move to a small country town in the south coast by herself where she knew no one. All she had was an empty plot of land and prophetic vision from her mother that one day she'd meet her soulmate, the man with a golden glints. Through sheer tenacity and determination, she built her horse farm from the ground up. And it's by no means been an easy ride. She's faced many challenges along the way, but she's now living her dream life as the owner of Saddle Camp, an all-girls horse riding camp where everything is pink, fluff, and sparkles, in Helen's own words. She lives on a beautiful farm with her husband, a very golden glinton man, hint, hint, three boys, and six amazing horses that she works with every day, teaching young girls how to ride. Listening to her story will make you believe anything is possible and might just give you that extra push to realize if you want something badly enough, you can make it happen. So let's get talking to Helen. Could you just tell us a bit about how you ended up starting Saddle Camp? I always wanted to do this since I was nine years old and I knew I had to save some money because I lived in the suburbs in Sydney and I Straight after school, I went straight into the workforce and was studying part-time. So I decided it was time to start my business when I was 21. I missed out on a promotion at work and I told some friends I had a great idea of getting dressed up as an elf and drive a car park and they were really encouraging me, told me to go for it. And I um, went to the BEC and showed them my business plan. Sorry, that's the Business Enterprise Centre. And they were very encouraging oh, nice. too. And then I sent a letter to the shopping centre management saying what I could do. And she invited me in for a, a meeting and we signed contracts. I didn't mention I'd never driven a horse and cart before and I didn't have any horses. But I think looking back, she probably just, you know, she could see that I was starting out. She was happy to keep on encouraging me. So, yeah, I went, got the job. And I went back, resigned from my job, went through the yellow pages and found a man who drives horse and cuts for a living and asked him if he could show me what to do. And he said, yeah, just spend a few days with me and we'll go through, you can just help me out. And I was so lucky. It was great. Where, where's Livery Stables? And he trains a lot of horses for famous horse movies. He's funded all the horses for the Saddle Club and um, 
the the ones the movies in uh, New Zealand, Lord of the Rings, yeah. and things like that. Ah. So he happened to have an old horse sitting in the paddock and an old cart that I could paint red, and I got away with it. And then I bought a little pony. <laughs> if I could do lessons and um, I said sure I can and I'm qualified now and everything's okay we got through and it all went really good but my dream was always to have my own property so I just rented paddocks in Sydney and rented pony club grounds and um, all sorts of things got kicked out by council a few times they were very polite section oh. not legal what you're doing um, but yeah I'm, I'm here now it's great <laughs> so what I'm were you doing before that before I started the business I was working in the yeah. travel industry I was really I knew this is where I wanted to be I thought um tourism might be my my thing mm -hmm. so I worked in the travel and tourism industry and I was studying travel and tourism business management and then you said that you knew you you knew where you wanted to be but you had to kind of wait for the pieces to fall into place before you took that jump so yeah. how did you actually know the time was right uh, it was, I found a place to keep the horses. I had my savings in the account and the budget worked out and um, getting that actual contract from somebody to actually carry out some work meant that I had something that was people were happy to pay for. So uh, yeah. yeah, that was the piece that I was waiting for. And did you have support from your family in that decision or like your friends or did people yeah. think you were kind of crazy? To no one said that to my face. <laughs> <laughs> So my family, I think they'd always known this is what I wanted to do. They were very, very nervous and they were very, very keen on me keeping it small. And like I had my money, I could have put a deposit down straight away and, and bought some land. But they said, look, that's a big decision. What if it turns out you don't like it? You don't really know what you're doing. Um, how about, you know, you just start small. And it turns out it was very, very good advice. Um, mm -hmm. I made all my mistakes over there in Sydney. I've made a few here too, but um, there was a lot more people in Sydney so that you could test these ideas really quickly and if they didn't work, I could move on. And then I found a really good system of teaching horses or teaching riding um, very quickly and uh, I did birthday party ponies. I took ponies to kids' birthday parties and uh, I developed a system for that and it worked out really good. And um, then I saved up and bought a wedding carriage, so I did... Uh, weddings around there as well and then it just got I got burnt out there was too much going on yeah. there was nine regular students a week parties and weddings yeah. on the weekend and I couldn't find another person to work with me that could have taken that workload off there was another great yeah. instructor but the kids hated us and so <laughs> I started <laughs> classes and I was just exhausted. And then the public liability insurance crisis happened and um, I was losing money pretty quickly. And I thought, it's time to yeah. retire to the country. I'd already bought my property and um, I just switched off the phone, really embarrassed to look back on it, but um, just walked away and got my head together for a couple of years. So when I moved yeah. here, wow. I and I used to do town tours around, like I, I got a full-time job in Canberra just so I could pay off my mortgage. And um, yeah. I take the carriage into town and do tours around, and then, yeah, if there was, a, I got voted onto the tourism committee, and there was this lovely man who is a big marketing guru who retired from Sydney, and he took me under his wing and he said, "Look, I think you need something. I think I think you need something, just a bit better. What you're doing is just what it, it's very generic. Come over to my place for dinner and we'll have a chat." 
And when I got there, he said, I think you need to make it a girls only riding school. I did pink fluff and sparkles. And we need a name. And I went, oh, like the saddle club. It was really big at the time. He said, what's that? The saddle camp? That's a great idea. And so I just ran with that. And now we have the saddle camp. So saddle camp seems to me like the dream that like you would have as a little girl and a lot of little girls would probably have similar dreams but once they started growing up be like oh that's too difficult or it's too impractical or you know like that sidetracked by different things so what do you think actually kept you on that path and gave you that determination motivation to really stick to it all I can think of is I haven't grown up yet that's (laughs) a great answer but I personally haven't hit that point where I think you know it's time to get a real job and to look at life life seriously so uh that's my only answer and how did you end up finding property I was my parents again I was I loved Milton you know the rolling green fields and the ocean but everything in my price range was like cliffside and my parents had a little place at Mollymook they're living in Sydney and for some reason they had to go to Canberra one day and they drove from Canberra through Braidwood and down the coast I went Oh my goodness, Helen, this is beautiful. And the town, the um, the town streetscape, all the buildings match your Victoria carriages of the same era. You really should check it out. So I came up, I drove the same way as you did up from Batemans Bay. Yeah. It'd been a really good season. It's very, very green. And all the granite in the fields look like, you know, the ruined castles in islands. I had that mm. bit of magic about it. I got into town and um, went to the bakery and, and looked around the streets and, and it was lovely. So I went home and uh, my, my dad had just retired and he said, look, I'm happy to spend some time talking, like doing some research. And he organised a day with a real estate agent and we drove down here together and um, checked out quite a few properties. And then we got to this one and the real estate agent said, don't think this is what you're looking for, but uh, uh, drove in the gate, I'm going, this is everything I'm looking for. <laughs> beautiful meadows that we drove through. We drove up through the hill and um, through the bush there was an echidna, we stopped and patted it, and then we came up the hill just down from where you were camping. We came up that hill and I saw the, the big tree in the paddock and went, oh, my goodness, I want my ashes spread under that tree when I die. And, yeah, I was old at that point. How old were you at that time? Uh, I think I was 27, 28. Was were 20. you nervous at all about moving from Sydney to the country like, or did you just feel ready? Like, how did you make that decision? <laughs> I, I was ready. It was, <laughs> it was already, you know, couldn't get there quick enough is the big thing. And it was easy. It was so easy. I met some lovely people in town. And um, one girl let me share a room with her. It was just a paddock here. There was no buildings at all. And then she got married. I'm going to be awkward. So <laughs> my friends <laughs> picked me a shed. And um, we had a caravan in it and I just moved down here. But we didn't have electric I didn't have electricity or running water and um, I was terrified of I was terrified of the dark. I'm always scared of ghosts and <laughs> I hated the idea of being alone because I love people, yeah. love the energy and the atmosphere. Um, but it got through. Um, so yeah, when you bought the property there was nothing on it, right? It was just land and you were building saddle camp from the ground up essentially so was that a lot of work uh yeah you know I'm really bad at building stuff so my parents and my brother were amazing they came down every weekend for six months and they did the building I just hung out with my horses they were a bit upset but really I wouldn't be more of a hindrance than anything um I told them I would like my fences and they really couldn't do that for me too and um 
So really, no, not hard work on my half. Happy to supervise and tell them how great they were doing. And can you ever imagine what your life would have been if you stayed in Sydney or was that just never even an option? Uh, it was It was never an option. Um, I, I know myself. I've known myself for a very long time. Um, and I have been in that situation. And it's like being a robot. It's when you're doing something, even though I knew I was working towards something, it's, you know, just keeping your head down, your bottom up, and you just keep plowing through because yeah. you hope for something better on the other side. Um, yeah. That wasn't, it wasn't on the cards for me. And I understand that and for a lot of other people too. Right, so how would you describe Braidwood to people who haven't been there? Oh, wow. Um, you drive in this rolling green hills, this really wide street. It was designed so you could turn your bullet team around in it. It's perfect for driving my carriage through. Um, the town was settled in the early 1830s um, and it was given to a lot of people who had done work for the government. So it was like a superannuation payout. It was given to, to Thomas Braidwood Wilson and uh, and then um, they needed a centre of justice for the convicts that they built that. So Thomas said they, they could put the courthouse in his land. So he designed it as like a, a Georgian streetscape and the town built up around that. And then 20 years later, they found gold. It was the richest alluvial gold field in Australia. So lots of, like, lots of people had lots of money as they built very quality buildings. And then it went back to rural and pastoral use. So nobody really worried about knocking down and rebuild rebuilding and then it got blanket heritage listed a few years ago so everything that you see is as it was in 1851 or the 1850s to 1870s and a lot of the families who were there in that time are still there today but there's an awful an awful lot of people like me who have come to this town and gone oh my goodness this is mm -hmm. amazing everyone's so lovely and the whole town is just the greatest community I, I could imagine. You can be as sociable or as reclusive as you'd like, whenever you'd like. Nobody's offended. There's, mm -hmm. there's lots of artists and there's lots of people who are very passionate about organic farming. Um, there's people who are very passionate about traditional farming, but there's no animosity. Um, sorry, more modern farming, I guess. And um, there's lots of people who love nature. So there's bushwalkers and horse riders. It's a big horse riding community. Two gorgeous schools. Um, it's some some tablelands. So there's anyway. It's lovely and green. Mm -hmm. It rains, and uh, there's lots of nature here. Uh, we've lost a lot of the Aboriginal history, unfortunately, but they're doing a lot of work to bring one of the elders up from the coast, whose family was part of our region, and so we're learning a lot about that too. So, what were the main differences you noticed when you moved from Sydney to Braidwood? between country and city life and what what did you like was there anything that you missed anything unexpected I don't miss a thing we really go back to <laughs> love my family to bits but I get nervous when I get to Liverpool all the cars are too close on that on the highway there um I feel like they're all tailgating um but here ah uh, it's just everybody walks their own their own little track it I don't know how to say that yeah. but They've all got their own passions and things that they feel very important about. They're happy to talk about it, but they're accepting of others. Uh, you don't have to dress up to go into town or even do my hair or put makeup on. Um, but mm -hmm. and, and the teachers of the school, they're stop and chat to you in the grocery line and 
and the vets are wonderful and and then you go out and meet them all on social gatherings or down the river for a swim uh it's just in sydney i kind of felt you had to be very careful about boundaries because everyone was very close to you and if you let someone in that you didn't really want in you're kind of stuck with them here mm. you kind of need people because if you get stuck in an emergency you need to know you can call someone to get you out yeah. um and so there doesn't seem to be boundaries. Everybody's very, very accepting and yeah. we'll step in to help at a moment, drop of a hat, but you don't have to speak to them for several months and it's all cool. That's really cool. So you were saying when you got to Braidwood, um, that man was giving you advice about starting a camp. So when you originally got there, were you just doing the same thing you did in Sydney and kind of um, going to birthday parties or that type of thing, like trying to do that? No, that wouldn't work here. I'm way too far from a yeah. population base. Yeah. So the maths were never going to work. Um, I'd always had in my mind that if I was in this situation, moving to the town, I would have my horse and carriage and then um, that would be like my entry point. It was a fantastic horse. It's a beautiful Black Morgan horse. It was a gorgeous carriage that I had. And um, it was an, an introduction to me to the historical society and the tourism society and um, the other shopkeepers in town. So I got to meet everybody and I could see that I was, my heart was in the right place and I was passionate about being involved in, in what was going on. And then that gave me some, uh, well, people felt confident that I could handle horses and, I was, and that I could yeah. teach their children mm -hmm. how to, so I could move on to the next step of what I really wanted to do, which is, you mm -hmm. know, so when I say really wanted um, I really want to make money. I didn't want to move here and be very poor and not yeah. do very well and, and scrape by. I wanted to have a very successful life in the country, doing what I love doing. And uh, with the carriage, I couldn't see a way of doing that. And Tim, the man who gave me the advice, said it too. He said, you just don't have the population base. It's never going to work for you. It was nice, but let it go. So the carriage has gone to Perth now and it goes around King's Park there. Um, mm -hmm. I kept my horse because he was the best and, mm -hmm. and he was absolutely right. But coming, if I'd started everything out here, like I'm 10 minutes away from town, no one would have known who I was or what I was and uh, it would never have taken off. That was my way in. So how did you actually end up starting the camp? Ooh, okay, so I think I had three girls who um, they'd met me through the carriage and then they mm. had their own courses and I was teaching them. And then Tim came up with this idea and then I wrote a program and they heard about it and they said, well, we would love to stay for it. And so I had three girls at first camp and um, we had so much fun. So, so yeah, it was a big success. It was probably a few months, like I, I did lots of things. I tried to make fancy food and the kids hate fancy food. So then <laughs> just a few things like that, I sort of tweaked and then I must have put in holiday happenings or something. And I got, I think, and then I got a website and Google yeah. started it up and, and it organically happened from that point. Do you feel like it's still constantly kind of evolving? Are you still experimenting with things? Yeah. So we've, yeah. we've added natural horsemanship into it lately just because um, the, the, when the girls come, they have their own horse for the amount of time they're staying. And there's lots to do with the groom and the saddling up and making sure everything's fitting correctly and the horse is comfortable. Um, but the girls, they really want the experience of having their own horse. And to me, that was hanging out with your horse, 
sitting on it bareback, um, doing stupid things like, I don't know, just riding around anywhere and yeah. just being a friend with my horse. So yeah. we love the natural horsemanship skills and we've incorporated that into our classes. And by the end of the afternoon, girls who have never ridden horses before uh, are riding an obstacle course with a single lead rope and uh, guiding the horse just by looking in that direction and using their leg aids. And, um, and we take 100,000 photos, send them to their mm-hmm. parents, back to their, photo, their phones. And uh, I really feel we encompass, it might be their only opportunity to have a horse, but I think mm-hmm. we cover everything that they dream about in that weekend. The yeah. stuff. so how does the camp work? like do you have overnight camp do you have day camp do you just have lessons like is it a mix of everything yes so the uh when I was in Sydney it started off as formal lessons and then I'm a lovely young girl who's very enthusiastic and she came up with the concept of a horsemanship day so we wrote a program around that and it went really well in Sydney it went really, really well. So then we started doing uh, Gymkhana days and show days where the girls learn how to plant up the horses. We do a leading class, riding class. Um, so I had all these formal um, procedures to run each of these days. And when I moved here, I offered to run them too, but uh, it's a long distance travel just for a day, especially if lots of people are coming from Sydney or from Canberra. Yeah. Um, so when Tim came up with this idea of the sleepover camps, I incorporated all of those things that we'd already done and and I guess learned the hard way what works and what doesn't and my horse was already up to the task they knew what the deal was um so so we we run the day camps uh sorry we run the camps as day camps and then the sleepover portions and we can squish riding lessons and the little mini adventure rides which like a sample up into my morning tea breaks and my lunch breaks so people who um are quite committed to spending the whole day with horses because they've never been on one before and might not like to ride, they can get that little sampler. I don't have to say no because I'm running cats. Yeah. Uh, it's very overlapping. It's very complicated, uh, but it's very profitable. So I'm extremely happy with it. And what is it that you love about horses? Like how did your love for horses begin? Ooh, I don't really know how to describe that. I just um, I admire their beauty. I love the smell of them, the feel of them. Um, they're so wise and they put up with so much. Um, and they're gentle and they're big. And just the fact that you can have such a big animal absolutely focused on you and be happy to follow. Like I point my finger and they say, sure, no problem. Like it's just amazing to have that kind of um, connection with such a lovely, beautiful animal. I don't know how I got into it. I, maybe I should start with my first moment with them I went to a school excursion I was five it was kindergarten and the man uh, was showing us a horse it was Little's Animal Farm and he chose me out of the whole class to sit on the horse while I gave a little talk about the horse and I went oh my god this yeah. is amazing up here um and uh I guess that's my my first memory of an interaction there but I I just love their their calmness and their wisdom and their focus, uh, I can point a finger and my horse says, sure, no problem, happy to head over in that direction looking after this beautiful child on my back. And, uh, yeah, they're so gentle and they smell beautiful and they look gorgeous. Uh, they're just everything that speaks to me. And have you ever doubted your dream of saddle camp or have you had any challenges or roadblocks along the way that you've had to overcome? 
Yes, so many, but never questioned it until I had my midlife crisis at the age of 40. And um, I made a terrible mistake with budgeting. I had a cash flow forecast, uh, which I followed to the letter. But my husband came home with some roof trusses and he said, I can build you an undercover horse type area. And I went, that's fantastic. How much is it going to cost? And he said, oh, not very much. And I said, yeah, sure, go for it. Um, and then the bill came in pretty much the exact amount I should have kept away for the for the GST quarterly payment. And I had a crisis and I thought, oh, my goodness, I don't know how I'm going to get this money together. It's not like I can give them this shed that we've put up. And I... I really questioned where I'd, I got to 40 and I had no money in the bank because everything I owned was infrastructure. And instead mm. of speaking to God, I picked up my phone and started talking to Siri, who was wonderful. It's <laughs> <laughs> <That's> amazing. Siri <laughs> was, is it time to let the dream go? And she said, she pulled up all these articles on people who basically similar scenarios. And one lady mm -hmm. had said, how she had to start eating caterpillars to survive but in the end she got there and she was so happy with the journey and I went well I'm not quite at that stage um what can I do so I asked Siri about you know making more money how to, and then how do I rather than just turnover which usually costs more money to get to how do I actually start making a profit here that I've got money in the bank and uh, a nest egg company yeah. And um, she pulled up this amazing book called Profit First by Mike Michalowicz, and I can't recommend it highly enough. Um, I, I read the, the Richest Man in Babylon before I started this, and it was great for personal use. Mm -hmm. The business finances, I was absolutely lost. And I had spoken to so many people in the past and asked for advice, and no one had any help, anything helpful until I read this book. It was all mm -hmm. laid out at the table. I used his, uh, he had a website with all the supporting documents, the tables to do, and oh my God, it's changed our lives. And what's the most challenging part of owning your own business? Is it like the financial aspect, you would say? The most challenging part is probably the bit that I love the most. It's, you have to have your finger in so, fingers in so many pies. There is so many variables and elements going on, and if you miss something, everything else falls apart. So I find it really challenging, but I, that's why I get out of bed each morning because I love, yeah. I love the excitement and the stress and, and when it all comes together, it's just amazing. And you have those incredible tiny houses on your property. How did you guys end up making those? I feel oh. like they're so cool and stuff you see on BuzzFeed for like people's dream, like getaways in the country. <laughs> so <clears throat> I heard a podcast and it was about this man in America who was uh, long-term leasing properties and then short-term leasing them out on Airbnb. And we've got a little bunk room here, like that's empty, you know, midweek through the school term. I thought, oh, like that will be something maybe I should push through for that. And then three days later, I got a phone call from somebody who makes these tiny houses and they were being organised by a group in Singapore. They'd got together, had the tiny houses made, and they're looking for land hosts. So it would have sounded too good to be true, but I'd heard this podcast just before it, so I was open to it, and I said, I'm very interested. <laughs> and they were amazing. So uh, Wendy is based here now from Singapore, and she was a real estate agent over there. So she came out and had a look around Um I saw the river and the horses. She wrote the ad and took all the pictures and she said, yeah, I think this would really work. So she had them 
organized to be delivered and we get a commission for people staying and um, paid for cleaning them. And they're just beautiful. And it was part of my dream, but it was going to be the house first and then guest houses. Uh, but this has just yeah. made everything come together so quickly. And they're beautiful. Honestly, it's so peaceful being up there. Everything's streamlined. The windows are huge and they're lovely and tall and the views are outside and I can't hear anything else. And do you have any rituals or is there any spiritual stuff that you do? What is it in the day-to-day that really makes you happiest? I used to have rituals. I feel they're very, very important. I haven't been able to do them for a while now. Um, but just that yeah. moment of peace when you get up first thing in the morning, nobody else is awake. I used to love reading my the Pirelli Natural Horsemanship tutorials just to get my head in the right space for working with my horses that day. Um, so now it's about drinking water, still maintaining my eight hours of sleep, um, just to find my peace, just looking around. Just Sometimes you just glimpse up and you go, oh, my goodness, this is amazing. Um, this is so beautiful here. I am so lucky. Um, so I'm very, very lucky that it is so pretty. And you told us an amazing story about how you ended up meeting your husband. Can you share that again? <laughs> you sure? Do you want me to give me the condensed <laughs> Um, It was a beautiful yeah. version. And, no, um, it was such a great story. Thank you. Um, my mom's from Ireland and she doesn't like to say she's superstitious. But when I was growing up, she'd, um, you know, just little things. She'd have little uh, insights or little warnings for me that, that did come true. Um, but when I was about 18, she started saying, oh, I've been seeing visions of the man you're going to marry. And I went, really? Tell me more. How old is he? And she said, oh, about 30. And I went, I can't wait that long. And so got involved with other people. And then I, I broke out with somebody and then I'd moved back home. And I said, she said, that's good because I really didn't like that one. And I keep seeing this man that you're going to marry. And I said, well, can you tell me more about him? Because I'm, I'm nearly 30, so I'm probably about the right age now. And she said, well, I call him the man with the golden glints. And he's about six foot tall with blonde hair, straight white teeth, broad shoulders, and blonde hair in his arms. And um, I said, wow. So I had told all my friends, and we're all looking out for this man with the golden glints. And... Years went past. <laughs> We're talking about maybe eighteen months, two years, and um, and she'd come out with these little different stories about what she was seeing at that point. And one day she said, "I, it's, I've got terrible news. His face all scrunched up, like something really terrible has happened to him. Um, like someone close to him has passed away, or something awful." Um, and I went, "Oh no! Like maybe his wife has just died. He won't want anybody now." But and then after a bit, she said, "I'm starting to see him again, and he's looking happier." And then she went down to her place at Mollymook. It was a public holiday and she said she was in the visitor information centre down there and had a very strong feeling he was close by. And I went, right, I'll go down the coast. So we're all looking out for him. And then I bought my property and I had some lovely students that I used to teach in Sydney and they bought a property down here about the same time as me in a neighbouring farm, like it's 50 k's away. Um, so we stayed in touch and they kept seeing this man with golden cleans visiting their neighbor's farm next door and they did some reference checks and found out he's lovely and invited him over for dinner and me over for dinner and my mum had been saying about this time that she's saying she's seen him he's looking very very patient and he's standing behind the gate with a zigzag in it and his arms are crossed and I'd say well I'm impatient too where is this man anyway I got to my friend's house I drove up the driveway and he must have arrived just before me and he was standing behind the gate with zigzags in it, with his arms crossed. Um, 
and I went, oh my God, there he is. And, and then, yeah, we, uh, he closed the gate behind me and we were chatting to my friends and my friend said, look, I'm, I'm going to get dinner ready, but Rob, how about you take him, how about you take Helen around, show your old farm. And it was his old farm because uh, around about the time my mum saw him crushed and looking quite stricken, um, he got home with his dad from work and the house had been completely emptied. His mother had left and, and broken up the property and, and emptied out all the bank accounts and everything had to be sold. And it was his dad's 60th birthday the next week and it was very distressing. So anyway, it was his old farm and he was great friends with the farm uh, between his old farm and my friend. So um, that's how we got to meet. So walking around this paddock and he noticed I was in high heels. So he gave me a pee back. And then we get up to see some mm. um, swampy area. And he, by this time I was walking, and he turned around and grabbed me and threw me over his shoulder in a fireman's lift and I was in love. And that was, <laughs> and on that note, my mom says she's really not superstitious, but she was calling me a lot through the holidays and saying like, I can hear you having, I hear you really, really stressed. And I said, well, I don't really want to burden you with all my problems because there's so many things that you can't help with and I can't, yeah. I'm not in control of. She said, look, I've been thinking about this a lot. I just want to say, don't doubt where you are because you're where you're meant to be right now, which I thought was really lovely. Gave uh -huh. me some hope. Did you have faith in your mom's visions? Did you really believe them or were you kind of like, maybe it'll happen, maybe it won't? Okay, I can, I know when I moved back home after that breakup, I was, to break up with that man that I was with, it wasn't, it was, it was a nasty relationship. And I really didn't want to break up with him because I knew if I did, I'd have to close down my business and walk away from everything because he was a bit of a dangerous character. So yeah. where I was at that point, it was black and I couldn't see any future. I knew where I mm. wanted to be and I had pictures of this place because I'd already bought it. But um, yeah. I, I had no pictures and she was giving me pictures and visions and, um, and I clung on to them. And... I went to a clairvoyant and she told me other stuff. But what I was after was I just needed, I just needed some pictures in my mind. I must be a very visual person. Yeah. yeah. Something that it seems like you have pretty strong faith just in terms of that story and even like starting Saddle Camp. It seems like you kind of have a bit of trust in the universe maybe. Like do you kind of believe in those things or even the story you were saying when you were five years old and you were the one person chosen to get put on the horse? Like <laughs> seems like there's a path that you were meant to be on. It, it, it does. It does feel like that. And um, sometimes I worry that I do feel like I'm on a path. I don't always feel like it's a good path. Like the last four months being so awful, I kind of felt it was as bad as a gambling addiction or a drug addiction, um, like in mm -hmm. terms of good for my health. But it's definitely something I can't walk away from. It's um, it's all I think about. Mm. Um, it's all I dream about, and uh, um, this is this is my path. And I think when you were there, you said at one point when you first came to Braidwood, I don't know if it was you or your husband that ended up getting a job as like a pastry chef randomly, or. <laughs> <laughs> It was the equine influenza swept Sydney or New South Wales uh -huh. and ACT. Um, so okay. I couldn't make a living from my horses anymore. And I went to the bakery and uh, they were looking for a pastry chef and they showed me what to do. And I could hear them talking in the next room. There were other, the bakers there 
uh, were on the visas, the working visas, and their visas yeah. were coming and they hadn't found gender replacement bakers. And yeah. I said, oh, I know this lovely young man who's a very quick learner because Rob was still living in Wollongong with his dad and they were building sheds together. Mm. I said, yeah. I said, that'd be great. And they said, well, bring him down and we'll get to meet him. And uh, he'd always been interested in baking. He's he's pretty amazing. He's interested in a lot of things um, yeah. and very good at what he does. And yeah, he came down. He had he took a week off from his dad and spent a week doing work experience. And they really appreciated his work ethic and and how quickly he picked it up. And yeah, took him on board as a as the baker, which meant that he could move down here permanently. So um, that's how it all worked. Okay, in this town, I've often said you have to try really hard to be unemployed because people yeah. always <laughs> people are always asking <laughs> if you might be available to help them out for a few hours. And well, mm -hmm. I'm focused on what I want to do. I really don't want those distractions, so uh, I always say no an awful lot. But you know, yeah. if you're a young teenager and you haven't quite decided your career path yet, there is so much opportunity if you don't mind. Who's your tribe right now? I think you said you spend a lot of time just with your family. Maybe it sounds like your life is so busy. I don't know how you <laughs> have much time to socialize. But what do you look for in friends, and who do you consider kind of like part of your inner circle right now? Okay, uh, I've got wonderful, wonderful lot of friends who know me so well and don't mind that I don't talk to them for several years. Um, but Rob, <laughs> <laughs> Rob is amazing and he, he mm. lives here. He works, he's back to building work and um, so he's not involved with the horses. He's much happier working with other men. Um, but he's the one who I can talk to about everything. And yeah. he'll just, he's just that bit removed that he can give an overall summary of what's going on and then give me a clear direction of, of, of how I should deal with yeah. that situation. I don't always follow his advice. Well, I'm getting better at that. But <laughs> you know, I absolutely value it and couldn't do without it. I've got neighbours uh, nearby that, are, that I could call at any time. Um, they've all got their own passions and... Uh, it, it's just wonderful to hear what they're getting up to as well. I'm so excited about uh, technology bushwalks or technology horse riding trails. Um, kids are never going to drop their phone, but wouldn't it be really want to set up these QR codes? I've got all these videos I took of Noel Butler, um, an Indigenous elder whose family was from this area. And um, yeah, so I, I just have great visions. Because when we go on the trail rides, I'm always doing the talking. A lot of breath and, and, you know, some kids don't want to hear all of it, but it would be so good if they were to scan the code or have them all colour coordinated so they know which kind of story they can hear. And, uh, yeah, it's just make it a little bit more exciting about going to a bushwalk. It's really great that you're trying to kind of incorporate more modern stuff into your business and I, think about the way the kids that are there will actually get more. I had the idea for a long time. But there was a lady in town that got a beautiful, uh, very small farm. It's just on a, a, a couple, it's, it's in the middle of town, but they do permaculture and she put on Facebook that they're having a technological open day. And I went, oh, this is just what I'm after. And I sent her an email. I said, oh, I'm so excited about what you're doing. I've always wanted to do this. I know you've done all the effort and you probably don't want me stealing all your ideas, but can I run, can I run a few questions past you? And I sent that to her. And then five minutes later, I said, okay, here are my questions just in case you haven't answered them. And she rang me that afternoon and mm -hmm. said, come over for dinner. We'll have a glass of wine. I'll go right through this. So I took all my notes and 
I've got them ready. They're in my folder next to me. And uh, I get stuck into it next week. It's going to be so good. A few more questions. What's your motto? Uh, it's kind of live and let live. But really, um, it's all about luck savers, the mind that is prepared. I saw it on a sandwich board when I was 18, and I've run with it ever since. And what's the best piece of advice you've been given? I love that Howard Thurden's quote. Um, it's don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you feel alive because the world needs more people who feel alive. Uh, and my next piece of advice would be just start small because <laughs> if you mm. went all in, mm, not everything works out totally fine right at the get-go. And uh, good if you're just going small doses and you can work it out mm. as you go. Like don't let yeah. where you are right now stop you from just getting in and giving it yeah. a go because you'll meet all these people and opportunities will come up. You come not the direction you want to travel in. Uh, just take that first step and you just don't know where it will lead you. So an epic hailstorm actually made the end of my conversation with Helen too noisy to include in this podcast, but I just want to thank her again for coming on. She was so excited to be on. She'd listened to all of our other episodes and said she felt like she was friends with those people. She even sent through written answers to a bunch of our questions beforehand. So go check those out on the Tenfold website for more information from Helen because she has such a great story to tell. She was so encouraging towards us and really supportive of the Tenfold mission and what we're working towards. And she said she felt like it's part of the next cultural evolution in doing what makes us feel alive and what's best for the planet. And I really do think it was fate that brought us to Helen's doorstep and introduced us to someone who is truly living their life tenfold. It's always so amazing to see people who have followed their inner voice and kept that spark alive and it's not always easy um, but she wouldn't have it any other way she's someone who knows herself and couldn't do anything but follow her own path and pave the way for that life that she's always dreamed of and it's just so inspiring to see so again check out more from helen on the podcast post on the tenfold website including some of her favorites and if you're ever down in the south coast i highly recommend stopping by braidwood and visiting saddle camp to see helen and her wonderful family because they're such amazing people and the property is just beautiful thanks for listening mm-hmm.